Hi, I'm Kayla. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom, and you're listening to True Crime Exposed. on our episode today that means you are listening to our very first episode ever and for that I am so grateful we have worked so hard on this we're so excited about this show if you have any like case suggestions or suggestions on things we could do to make this show better please stick around at the end of the episode for the credits so that you can hear the email where you can send those to. We would love your constructive criticism because it's just us. We're making this show all by ourselves and we want to do everything we can to improve. Me and my mom actually don't live in the same state, so we do record our audio separate. So it does sound a little different. You'll notice that we're not in the exact same room, but that's okay because they're still great episodes and it will just get better with time. I'm guessing that if you clicked on our show today, you clicked in search of true crime cases that you may have never heard of. Well, you made it and you are in the right place. So welcome to our show. To introduce ourselves, we are a daughter and mom duo. I host this show. My mom will listen, discuss, react, and do all the things. We discuss a brand new case every single week. You'll feel right at home with our casual storytelling. We created True Crime Exposed to not only expose some of the worst people that exist among us and commit these crimes, but most of all, to give each victim's story exposure. We support the life of anyone who was taken from us unjustly. And by sharing these stories, we can be victim advocates. We love being a voice for those that no longer have one, for getting stories out there that need to be heard. And with that, let's start on our very first case. All right, so this is our first episode, and I chose one that I'm obsessed with, and you know that I've been obsessed with this case for years. It's a case right out of where I grew up and where I currently live here in Idaho Falls, Idaho. And I was initially invested back in high school, and I watched Dateline pretty much 24-7. I came across the episode titled, Who Killed Angie Dodge? The case was air quotes, solved, but there was so much more to the story. Back then, I could not decide what I believed, but since then, there have been huge developments in the case, and I have a special guest interview sprinkled into today's episode, and there are just so many factors to the case of Angie Dodge that make it important to talk about, and that's why I've chosen it to be our very first episode. So... 
Let's go back to the summer of 1996. Angie Dodge was 18 years old and had just recently moved out of her family home. And when I say recently, I literally mean she moved out three weeks before this story tragically starts. With this move, she is navigating her new independence. Angie was the youngest of her siblings and the only daughter. So this created a special bond between her and her mom, Carol Dodge. On a new show that came out just this past year called The Genetic Detective, Carol Dodge explains that Angie had actually broken a house rule. She did not go into detail, but this is the reason that Angie moved out and decided she was going to take life head on and take that grown-up step if she wanted to live on her own with more freedom. It was her first step into adulthood, and we all know how that is. It's hard to feel like a grown-up within a household, and although it's challenging to move out and grow up, it was also like a breath of fresh air, and Angie was excited about this next chapter in her life. Only three short weeks after Angie moved out on her own, Carol called up the local beauty supply store in Idaho Falls where Angie worked. It was June 13, 1996. Carol asked to speak with her daughter so that she could invite her to lunch. This was a fun way that Carol could still connect with Angie and kind of get used to her not being in the home regularly anymore. The response Carol received on the phone would change her life forever, and she talks about this moment on that Dateline episode I talked about earlier. The voice on the other end of the phone call was heavy, and a woman replied, quote, Angie was found dead. You need to go to the police department. End quote. Whoa. Was that the salon owner? I don't know if it was the salon owner, but it was whoever was on the phone, which you'll see later on in the story. It was actually some of her coworkers that discovered her. And this is probably why her work was notified first. Yeah, that would be completely shocking to hear that she was dead. When you're calling to invite her to lunch. Wow. Yeah. So Carol Dodge's heart like dropped into her stomach and she raced out the door to find out what happened to her daughter. Now, earlier that morning, Angie had never shown up to work. Her coworkers had tried to call her and she didn't answer over and over. The silence on the other end of the ringer just wasn't sitting right with them. We always hear it in these cases. It was just not like Angie to no call, no show. She had always been dependable. For example, just one year earlier in 1995, she graduated from Idaho Falls High School with honors. She had always been smart and hardworking. She would never just jeopardize her job. I mean, she just barely moved out, so she needed this job. I'm surprised that they didn't um, try to call her mom to see if her mom knew where she was. I know. And I don't know if it's just because she just moved out or what, but yeah, no one got a hold of her mom until her mom called them. So it wasn't sitting well with Angie's coworkers when she never arrived, never answered a phone call and never called back. A couple hours into this shift, that uneasy feeling would perplex a couple of co-workers to go check on her down at her new I Street apartment just before 11 a.m. that morning. 
They never expected the worst. They figured they would see if she was home, and it was a nice excuse to get away from work for a half hour or so. But when they arrive at Angie's front door, they notice it's already slightly open. Angie's apartment is an upstairs of a two-story house where the homeowners converted the second floor into an apartment. So her front door wasn't actually the front door to the home. It was a door that was like on the side of the house and it opened up to a set of stairs that would lead you into Angie's space. Her coworkers softly pushed that already open door. They walk in and as they are walking up the stairs, they're calling out Angie's name. As they enter further into the apartment, they aren't seeing anything unusual until they enter her bedroom. Once they witness the scene inside Angie's bedroom, they immediately start shaking and before they know it, they're on the phone with 911. Angie had been murdered. Was the apartment just hers alone or did she have a roommate? It was just hers alone. So it probably wasn't very big. I actually have gone by the house since it's here in Idaho Falls. I drove by it and it's like redone now and different, but I just wanted to go like look at the street. You'll see why later on, but it looks like a pretty small house. So it's probably more like a loft area ish. Like a studio. Well, kind of, but it did have like a bedroom. Okay. So officers from the Idaho Falls Police Department start to arrive quickly after they receive that 911 phone call. Some of the first arriving at the scene include Bill Squires, Ken Brown, and Jeff Pratt. Bill Squires was fresh out of police training with only about one month of work under his belt, and this was his first homicide. Ken Brown was the first officer at the crime scene, and he would take charge of the investigation, later on bringing in Jared Furman. Jeff Pratt was the detective who processed the violent crime scene. And a trigger warning for people who don't want to hear the details on how she was found, we're going to talk about that now. So Angie is discovered laying on her back next to her mattress. She's covered in blood. Her pants were sitting at her knees, and she had obvious signs of rape. Her shirt was on, but lifted up, exposing a slash across her breast, which was just one of 14 stab wounds she received. The most gruesome injury was a slit to her throat. As Pratt processed the crime scene, he discovered that semen was left behind by the perpetrator of this murder. Once Carol heard the news about how her daughter was murdered, her world was shattered. And as she shared the news with family and friends, more and more devastation came. Not only did they all lose Angie, but her death was surrounded by the dark mystery of who was responsible for stealing her life from her. I found this awesome tribute website for Angie. It's created by her family and close friends. You can visit it at www.angiedodge.com. They also have a link on this page where you can donate to Five for Hope. This organization was started by Angie's mom, Carol Dodge, and I believe one of her brothers. All donations they receive go to nonprofit cold case foundations, unfunded police departments, and to purchase testing equipment for further technology advancements. I encourage everyone to visit this site and donate to this organization. While I was on this site, I learned that Angie had three older brothers, Roger, Todd, and Brent. 
Her parents, Jack and Carol Dodge, missed her dearly from the second they found out they lost their only daughter. I have two daughters and I can't even begin to imagine losing like a child. It's just not fair to lose your child. It's not. It's probably so hard for Carol. Yeah. And I really think it was like so hard on her and she she plays a huge role in Angie's case because of it. She like never gives up. I know. It's crazy. So Angie had a loving nature and she cherished the time that she spent with those she loved. To lose her at that young age of 18 was devastating to those close to her as well as the community. Idaho Falls is a somewhat smaller town, especially back in the 90s. At the time of Angie's murder, they only had one to two homicides a year. So this murder would impact Idaho Falls for many years after. On June 12, 1996, just one day before she was discovered murdered, Angie had come by the family home around 9.15 p.m. Remember, she had just moved out on her own three weeks earlier. She was excited about her new apartment, but also recognized the hardships that come with growing up. So as Angie was getting ready to leave, Carol would never forget those last moments with her daughter. She wrote this on the tribute site. Quote, I recall reaching out to give her a hug and she leaned her head on my shoulder as we rocked back and forth as if we were dancing. I whispered to her that she would always be my baby and I told her how much I loved her. She replied, quote, I still whittle, huh, mommy? End quote. She always said whittle instead of little as it was her way of saying that she would always be my baby. End quote. And then as Angie was pulling away, leaving to go back to her apartment, Carol recalls, quote, I remember her pulling away as though she was in slow motion. She threw me a kiss and whispered, I love you, as I did her. Neither of us knew that that would be our last moments in time, end quote. That part like breaks my heart and warms it at the same time because I'm so glad that Carol has this like amazing and special last memory of Angie, but it shouldn't have been their last moment together. They should have had many, many more years. Like I said, Idaho Falls is a smaller town, a seemingly safe area, a very religious community that embodies family values. The crime rate here is low. And again, at the time of Angie's death, the rate of homicide was only one to two per year. The news of what happened to Angie rocked this community and continued to leave its mark even more than 20 years down the road. So now it's been three days since Angie was discovered murdered. The Idaho Falls Police Department have been investigating and have already questioned everyone close to Angie, starting with those physically close to her, her neighbors. They have gone door to door questioning everyone, asking all those standard questions like, did you hear anything strange on this night? Did you see anything unusual? It was determined that Angie met her terrifying fate in the late hours on June 12th or the early morning hours of June 13th, sometime between 11.30 p.m. and 6.30 a.m. I have always wondered, was there anyone in that space below her? Because remember, this is an upstairs apartment. That's what I was just thinking. Who lived in the house or the below her? And did they hear anything? Yeah, you would think it 
like if there was a struggle, which we know there was, those downstairs neighbors should have heard something. Yeah. Unless they were older, I guess. Yeah. And that's true. And I can't find anywhere that it stated that anyone gave statements or that anyone heard anything. You'd hope if they heard something, they would have called the police. Yeah, I just think it's so impressive that Angie was just barely 18 and she moved out, lived on her own. I wonder if she knew the people that she was renting from or if she just randomly um, found the place to rent. Oh, I know. I haven't thought about that at all. That's like a good thought, though. I've never really seen anything about who actually owned the house. Yeah, it's never really brought up. Yeah, so I guess we can either assume like they weren't home that night or like you said, maybe they were like old and couldn't hear that well or sometimes people sleep with earplugs in. I don't know. In the official investigation records, police recorded their conversations with Angie's neighbors, friends, family, you know, everyone. One neighbor had been in and out of his home that night, but he told the police that he didn't notice anything unusual. His name was Brian Drips, and it sounds like he stated to the officers that he had actually left his home to hit the bars that evening and then returned home about 11.30 p.m. And he was home for a while and then decided to go back out around 3 a.m., returning early that morning. He talked with the police and said he had a view of Angie's home every time he came and went, but he had not seen any unusual vehicles, he hadn't heard anything, and he didn't see any unusual activity going on across the street. So the police move on. They didn't feel like they were receiving any real leads through questioning the neighbors or Angie's family. Everyone was cleared and they continued to look for Angie's murderer. Yeah, they had to next turn to her friends, probably. I wonder if she had gone out that night. Well, she did also have a boyfriend, but I read that they basically cleared her boyfriend and her family really quickly. And then they kind of get into like her friend group a little later on. So months go on and Angie's family had spent their first heart-wrenching Christmas in 1996 without Angie and still without answers. But Carol Dodge would not give up, like you said earlier. It became her life mission to find justice for her daughter, and she started searching for answers of her own. She didn't know what else to do to cope with the anguish and pain of losing her only daughter, So she ended up putting over 60,000 miles on her truck, driving around Idaho Falls and searching for answers to Angie's murder herself. She was like her own private investigator. Yeah. Like she would not stop putting in the work until she found answers. I feel like that's how I would be. Because you like get obsessive. I had the OCD. (laughs) Yep. You would like obsess about it and have to know why it happened. Yeah. That would just drive me crazy not to know the answers. I know. And a lot of parents would probably just like sit with their grief, which is totally understandable. But you would definitely be one I feel that would like get out there and do the work. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Yep. So during that Christmas, Angie's family was, of course, like sick to their stomachs with grief. But they didn't know that police were chasing down their first real lead. That was received just one month earlier, in November of 1996. 
one of Angie's closest friends was arrested down in Nevada. Now, what does that have to do with Angie's case, right? Well, he was arrested for a rape committed at knife point. That's eerily similar to the way that Angie was killed. And this was one of her friends? This was one of her best friends. Angie was extremely close with him, and his name is Ben Hobbs. They were even so close that he carried flowers at her funeral that year, which was on June 18th, 1996. And everyone said he seemed to be absolutely devastated when she passed. Oh my gosh, that is pretty similar. So similar. This coincidence just could not be ignored, and it led the police to bring in some of Ben's friends, including Christopher Tapp and Jeremy Sargis. Police wanted to see if they had any information regarding the murder of Angie. These men were all young, ranging from 18 to 20 years old. Both Chris and Jeremy knew Angie, but just more like an acquaintance. They all shared Ben Hobbs as a mutual friend. Now, Ben Hobbs is the one that was arrested in Nevada. All three boys initially denied any involvement or knowledge of the case and stated that they were eager and willing to cooperate. Ben was eventually convicted on those rape charges in Nevada, but he continued to deny any involvement with Angie's case. He stated to the police, quote, I don't kill my friends. I'm sorry. End well, quote. <laughs> okay. <laughs> then who'd, 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 who does he do it to? To random people? I know. That is such a weird quote. And it's just weird to me because it's like, if you were like absolutely devastated at one of your best friends being raped and killed by getting stabbed, like, why would you go do that to someone else? I mean, he didn't kill the girl, but... Still, it's really bad. In this next clip, you'll hear what Christopher Tapp told me about his friendship with Ben Hobbs and Angie Dodge. Me and Ben met each other in 95, and we had a you know truly liking for each other, so we became friends in 95, and we continued the friendship until, you know, 96, and everybody started to go their separate ways. You know, Ben went down to Phoenix, I stayed here, I went to rehab. You okay. know, I was trying to get my life together yeah. and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's the biggest thing was Ben was way closer friends with Angie than I ever was. All three of these men continued to be questioned, but there was no evidence linking them to the murder. They were persons of interest simply due to their connection to Ben Hobbs, but no arrest could be made. Chris continued to go down to the police station over a course of nine days. And in those nine days, he was interrogated for a total of 40 hours by Ken Brown and Jared Furman. Remember, Ken Brown was the first at the crime scene. That scene replayed in his mind and he wanted so badly to get justice for Angie. And he was becoming more and more sure that these three guys had something to do with Angie's murder. Christopher Tapp ended up taking six polygraphs all given to him by Steve Finn. And slowly, Chris's story started to change. He initially was claiming that he had nothing to do with Angie's murder. But later on in his questioning, he would state that he was there during the murder. But he thought it was a joke until it took a dark turn. Eventually... 
Chris comes to his final confession made at the Idaho Falls Police Department. Chris tells authorities he was there. He had held Angie's hands down and cut her once with a knife while Jeremy Sargis raped her and then killed her. But Jeremy adamantly denied these allegations. He continued to maintain his innocence. And regardless, in February 1997, less than one year after Angie's death, both Chris and Jeremy were arrested. Chris was charged with first-degree murder and rape, while Jeremy was charged with accessory to murder. But Jeremy wasn't giving in. He stuck with his story. He got a lawyer, and with no evidence against Jeremy except for Chris's confession, Jeremy's charges were eventually dropped. But life did not go back to normal for him. Jeremy did have to move out of Idaho Falls because it was too much for him to continue his life here after he was named in connection to Angie's murder. So Chris admitted to being there, but he said that Jeremy did the rape and the murder, but then Jeremy got off? Yes. So Chris says he was there. He saw Angie get raped and murdered, and he cut her one time, but that Jeremy is the one who raped her and left the semen. And he's the one who killed her. But because Jeremy denied and got a lawyer and apparently, you know, they didn't think they had enough just based off Chris saying it, they dropped the charges against Jeremy. But since Chris didn't deny being there, they felt like they still had enough to take him to trial. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So two years after Angie was found brutally murdered in cold blood, Christopher Tapp was found guilty and convicted on the charges of murder and rape. Angie's family was angry with him, as you would expect. They wanted Chris to suffer the same fate that Angie had, so they decided to seek the death penalty. At Chris's sentencing hearing, he pleaded for his life. Quote, I'm sorry for Mrs. Dodge's loss and suffering for her only daughter. The taking of my life would not bring her daughter back. It will be another tragic loss that has to occur to another family. I am not the monster or animal that everyone thinks I am. Barely escaping the death penalty, Chris was sentenced to life in prison for murder and 20 years for rape. He would be eligible for parole after serving 30 years. This didn't feel like justice to Angie's family, but it was a small win knowing that at least one of Angie's attackers would spend time in prison. And they would fight to not let this monster that took their daughter out on parole. They would also continue to fight to take down the others that played a role in Angie's death. Yeah, I wonder what they thought about Jeremy going free. I'm sure it was really hard when they think that he's like the main person. And I think that's why Carol continues to look for answers in this case because she's she's not just going to let Chris go and not take down the other people that took Angie's life. Right, because he didn't admit to murdering her. Right. This story seems simple and to the point. The man who confessed to being a part of Angie Dodge's tragic ending was behind bars. Law enforcement felt that the justice was served, but was it? Because remember in the beginning of this episode when I stated that the perpetrator left DNA all over the crime scene? Well, it never matched anyone. Not Ben Hobbs, 
Not Jeremy Sargis, not Christopher Tapp. What? Yeah. Police had collected over a hundred samples of DNA and they came back with no matches. At that time? Yeah. So they knew going into the trial, it didn't match Chris. It didn't match anybody. Oh, that just doesn't make sense. No. So the police's theory was that Chris and Jeremy were there, along with a third man that was unidentified, and that the third man would match the DNA. But that's a pretty far reach. And nothing is quite what it seems. So during Chris's sentencing, Carol Dodge felt that small ounce of relief knowing that a killer was off the streets. But that same question that you just asked yourself was the same thing on Carol's mind. What about the DNA? So 11 years after Angie was taken from her, this nagging question led Carol to reach out to DNA expert Greg Hampikian, who runs the Idaho Innocence Project out of Boise State University. She did research herself for years until she came upon an article on Greg Hampikian and his work with DNA. She knew that she had to get a hold of him, and so she did. But what Carol did not know when she reached out to Greg was that he had just taken on a new case, the case of Christopher Tapp. At the end of Greg and Carol's conversation, he relayed this information to Carol. He wanted to be professional and upfront. But to his surprise, Carol didn't care that he took on Chris's case. She just wanted to know what really happened. The Idaho Innocence Project is the second organization that we are going to encourage you to support today. They are a nonprofit organization and they help free the innocent, fighting for justice for those wrongfully convicted. Often when we think about advocating for victims of true crime, we don't think of all those serving time for a crime that they did not commit. But we should be. Not only does keeping them behind bars keep us from exposing the true perpetrator of a crime, but they are also victims of these crimes, losing many years of their life for something that they did not do. You can find this organization on Facebook by searching Idaho Innocence Project and on Instagram at Idaho Innocence. True Crime Exposed encourages you to support them in any way you can. Donate if possible or simply just support their social media. Share them onto your social media. Just get the word out there. So Greg Hampikian starts to work with Carol Dodge and everything he reviews in Angie's case just keeps leading him to the conclusion that there is only one perpetrator. All the DNA found tied back to the semen left at the crime scene, indicating that all the evidence links to one person. This made Carol question everything she believed about her daughter's case. Carol wanted to understand the police's theory for herself. That theory that Christopher Tapp murdered Angie with his friend Jeremy Sargis and that a third unknown man left the DNA. So she obtained as many records as she could on Angie's case, including the interrogation tapes. It took her hours to review the records and tapes and ultimately what Carol discovered through her research shook her to her core as she realized that what she believed what the police believed for the last 13 years was simply not what happened. What she saw in those interrogation tapes was that the police had a strategy 
and it was to get the boys to flip on one another. They offered agreements to each of the men if they could provide any information. And it just so happens that Jared Furman was the school cop when Chris attended Eagle Rock Junior High. This instilled in Chris a trust of Furman, and when an immunity agreement was offered up and Chris was told that the police just wanted to help him, he believed them. And without a lawyer, he continued to return to the police station for the next nine days, changing his story multiple times as he was fed information about the case. Oh, make, it makes you wonder if his family knew. I, I don't know if his parents knew he was going. I think he just thought like he was helping out. But Carol discovered that Chris messed up multiple times in his stories, always being corrected by the officers. For example, at one point, Chris said that the murder did not happen in the bedroom. And the officers correct him, telling him she actually was murdered in the bedroom and he must be burying this memory. You can see part of these tapes played on that Dateline episode. And you can see the officers correcting his story and how it became a trend throughout the interrogation tapes along with the officers playing like a hypothetical game with Chris, saying, what if you did hold her arms down? What if you did cut her with the knife? It would be okay because you weren't the one who killed her. And then Chris replies and says, if I was there, I would remember, wouldn't I? Yeah, you would remember. <laughs> it's like, yes, I think you would remember if you were there at a murder. It all started because of Ben, you know, catching his felony in his case in Nevada that the Idaho Falls Police Department said, oh, it's similar, and now we need to start looking at more of Ben's friends. And then there was a female, her name was Jenna Shaw. She mentioned my name. Oh, okay. You know, I was friends with Ben and, right. and stuff, and then her testimony says that she overheard me and Ben discussing about an alibi or whatever. And, but the whole entire thing was, it was all just the idea of that was us three, because during the whole entire time of the interrogations, you know, I mentioned, you know, my best friend Tommy Brown, I mentioned Jeremy Sarges, Ben Hobbs, right. you know, I, I was given whatever the police department wanted me to give them is exactly what I was turning mm -hmm. back to them. So that's what caused all this. <laughs> Once Carol made all these discoveries, she reached out to Chris in prison with the help of Greg Kampikian, and they formed a relationship. Carol ended up becoming one of Chris's biggest advocates. Wow, those interrogation tapes. Like, she must have really thought that they, like, coerced him. Yeah, they're pretty bad. I've only seen part of them on that Dateline episode, and she watched all of them. And just the parts that they shared on that episode are, like, very obvious that he did not do it. Uh, she contacted the Idaho Innocence Project, you know, Greg Hampikian first, and and like Greg has said, she just wanted to know the truth, who truly killed her daughter. And then she contacted my attorney, John Thomas, you know, in 2009. Her and John started to have communications. And then John let me know about 2010, hey, you know, Carol would like to talk to you. And I was really, you know, hesitant because, again, the last communication I ever had with Carol Dodds was when she talked to me at my sentencing. And they wanted... 
the death penalty back then. Right, correct. So they were seeking the death penalty. So it was a really hard idea to be like, all right, well, let me talk to the woman. And, right. And I did. You know, John convinced me, you know, she was on board. She was being an advocate and she just wanted to talk to me. And then during that time, I sent her that letter while I was incarcerated. And, you know, they sent me out of state for a year because of, you know, overcrowding here in the prison population. So they sent me out of state, uh, an individual, a friend of, you know, Carol's and a friend of mine says, hey, you need to write her a letter. Just tell her whatever. Right. She said, but she needs to know, Chris. And I wrote her that letter. And I told her honestly, I had no idea who killed your daughter. So the first phone call was, you know, Chris, I've watched the interrogation tapes. You're not guilty. Right. And, and it was truly an amazing feeling to have that come from, you know, Carol Dodge, the victim's mother, to say, hey, there's a problem here. So then Carol became a humongous advocate for me and started becoming more of my voice that she was hoping that, you know, a lot of false police bar would listen to. and and But people did listen to her. You know, that's what caused, you know, the first Dateline interview in 2012 right. is because it's such a weird story to have, you know, the victim's mother stand up saying, hey, hold up, he's innocent, you have the wrong guy. So Carol continued her journey in discovering the truth and was coming to terms with realizing that the man she believed for 13 years had a hand in her daughter's slaying actually had nothing to do with it. She contacted Steve Drizzen, who is an expert in false confessions. He stated to Dateline NBC that he never, ever receives calls from the victim's families. This was new for him. He reviewed the interrogation tapes and saw all the things Carol was seeing. On top of the police offering him immunity for information, they were also threatening him with the death penalty. This was the worst confession Steve Drizzen had ever evaluated. Well, yeah. Can you imagine being a young kid telling him if you don't confess or that you're going to get put like, to death? if you death? don't tell us something, you're going to jail. He just wasn't mature enough yet to understand that they were, you know, kind of manipulating him into saying it. Right. Throughout his polygraphs, Chris's memory was actually manipulated. As I stated earlier, he was polygraphed six different times during this nine-day period, along with his many hours of interrogation. When Chris would answer a question in the way cops wanted him to, such as stating he was there when Angie was murdered or implicating his friends, the police would tell him that the polygraph showed truthful. Again, telling him that his memory was just buried. At one point during an interrogation, when being asked if Jeremy was there, the police remind Chris of his immunity deal. Then Chris replies, quote, I've got an outrageous deal and I ain't going to screw that up. Maybe he was there, end quote. Which it's like... <laughs> I don't know. You think they must have thought it was him, but like in their minds, I think they really did believe that he had something to do with it. But it's like you got to not put blinders on because him saying that he's got a great deal. So maybe his friend was there. Sounds like so obvious to me that he wasn't there. Yeah. 
And then later on, during one of the many polygraphs that he was given, he is asked if Jeremy Sargis was involved in the murder. Chris states yes during the polygraph. However, when he's taking the polygraph equipment off, he states, quote, for some reason, I just never remember seeing Jer there, end quote. Oh, my goodness. Did, um... Did they say whether he, like, passed or failed the polygraphs? Well, that's kind of what I was saying earlier. They, I don't think they were being truthful with him about if he was passing or failing. So he would answer a question how the police wanted him to, and they would be like, yeah, yeah, you passed that question. You showed that 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 was the truth. Mm. All the time telling him that his memory was buried. So... He might have been confused. Like, was I there? I don't know. Oh, that's so sad. I know. And when I was like a teenager and obsessed with this case, I did not believe in false confessions. I was just like naive to the fact that this happens. But this case is really what changed my mind and opened my eyes. So I'm glad we're talking about it for those that do question false confessions and say like, you know, why would someone do that? Because the quotes we are reading bring really clear to me that he was saying whatever he thought he had to say to save himself. Yeah, I wonder um, if him and his friends like partied or like partied with her and like he thought, well, maybe I can't remember. Yeah. Um, So because of that, if he was like out of it or something. Yeah, they weren't with her that day, even though that is a rumor that like goes around in Idaho Falls. I've heard it before. But when I talked with him in this interview that I did with him last year, he said like he wasn't with her that night and he barely knew her. He it sounds like every time I've ever heard of this case, they make it sound like they were really good friends, but really he said she was good friends with Ben and he just sort of knew who she was because of that. Yeah, it's just crazy that the police could make him think like, well, maybe maybe I was there because you would think you would know. I know. For sure, like if you were there or not. I know. And I think just like over time, like 40 hours, he was questioned like almost a full time job in like one week. If it was just confusing or if he was really scared that they were going to pin it on him no matter what. So he was just saying whatever he needed to. It's just sad. Yeah, it is. And just before his final confession, he was taken to Angie's apartment and this was unrecorded. And I'm just going to stop here and play part of my recording with Chris where he explains the friendship him and Angie had. We're more of acquaintances than friends. I mean, back in 95 and 96, we all hung down at the river here in Idaho Falls <laughs> at uh, John Hall's Bridge. So all of us, you know, are around the same age between like 18 to 21, 22. So we're all just hanging out, having a great time. Angie Dodge is one of those people that hung out down there and I right. hung out down there. So we had a lot of mutual of the same friends, but... I've never been to her apartment until the, you know, you know, Idaho Falls Police Department took me there. Oh, okay. So I never, that was the one misconception I've, I've explained, you yes. know, through, through the time was, everybody was like, oh, you guys are friends. No, we really weren't friends. Right. We just had a lot of mutual of the same friends. So here at Angie's apartment is where Furman claims that Chris confessed in detail. He was then brought back to the police station where he gives his final confession. 
all along believing he's confessing and giving up his friends to save himself with his immunity deal. Which, mom, you didn't just hear that clip, but all like the people listening will have heard it. So in that clip, he actually says that when he is taken to the apartment unrecorded, that was his first time ever going to Angie's apartment. He had never been there. Oh, what? Like he had never hung out with her there. He had never been to her apartment and that was his first time. Oh, that is just crazy. Like we talked about earlier, that DNA was tested against all three boys, Ben, Jeremy, and Chris. And what do you know? It did not match any of them. On Dateline's episode, Who Killed Angie Dodge?, You can see police get angry with Chris, telling him that he was, quote, screwing with them, end quote, because his immunity deal was only in place as long as he was truthful. And because the DNA did not match Jeremy, who Chris stated was the one who raped her, they were able to take the immunity deal off the table. And this is when Chris's world really started to crumble around him. On that same episode, you see him in a tape saying, quote, I don't know what the hell it is you guys want from me, but I'm trying to give it to you, end quote. Later on, he also says, quote, can I just go back to the beginning? I was never there. I was never involved, end oh. quote. Well, and just imagine his friend Jeremy, too. Like if he wasn't there, but then he said that his friend did it. I know his friend's like, dude, what the heck? <laughs> Like, why would you do that? But you can see that he was being clearly manipulated. And that's why he did that. And yeah, out of fear. Yeah. And at that end, when they take that immunity deal off the table, I, I think it was just like panic. Yeah. Like, I only said all of this because you gave me that deal. Oh, that poor kid. Fear, anger. Frustration, confusion. I mean, you go through the whole entire gamut of how this happened, why did this happen, and and then you sometimes have to fathom the idea that this might be what you're going to be stuck with for these X amount of years that I was sentenced to at that time. Right. It was hard. I will never deny that fact. It was truly hard and terrifying. And we all know that he could not go back to the beginning now. He was convicted and serving time for a crime he did not commit. While all this information was coming out to Carol and multiple organizations were starting to take notice, Chris's attorney, John Thomas, asked to have the swabs from Angie's hands tested, which had never been tested before. And as Greg Hampikian thought, all DNA found at the crime scene continued to lead back to the one man who left his semen at the crime scene. Her hand swabs, Angie's sweatpants, her teddy bear, a t-shirt, and a pubic hair left at the crime scene all had the same result. There were certain people that did, you know, be advocates for me during this time. A friend of mine, he painted on the back of his leather jacket, you know, free, free tap. Oh, and he, I love that. He used to be every time he wore that leather jacket out around town, the Idaho Falls Police Department would harass him and, and bother him. Really? So I did have s- certain friends that supported me and, and stood by me and knew of my innocence way back then, or 
But again, it was more of a headache and more of a hassle. And, and then again, you know, the media portrayed me as such a humongous monster. And again, you know, people believe what the media spit. So a lot of my core friends, you know, start separating themselves from me and my mother and stuff like that. But I had true friends that stood, you know, for 20, 20 years until my release that knew of my innocence and then which was truly amazing, but again, everybody else changes the world. John Thomas and Chris appealed his case four times, and four times they were denied. Next, I'll play a clip of Chris giving a brief description of being locked up in the prison system. It was just understanding a routine you know prison's pretty regiment you know they tell you when to get up when you can not go to bed when to eat when not to eat go outside not to go outside stuff like that so you just get into the regiment and the cycle of the routine of being inside but you continue to fight for yourself you continue to try to do the best that you can while you're inside because of the situation you can never be down i mean and then you lose all emotions while you're inside because you have to become just like strong. Yeah, physically strong, mentally strong, and you just have to deal with everything that comes because of it. Chris and John refused to give up. And finally, 20 years after his sentencing, a new judge, Alan Stevens, was assigned to Chris's case and pushed forward the petitions for post-conviction relief. And a new trial was set. Just two weeks before the new trial, Chris struck up a deal with the district attorney office. With the DNA evidence not matching him, he agreed to keep the murder charge and the rape charge would be dropped. So Chris did this and agreed to keep the murder charge because by dropping the rape charge, they would let him free that same day he agreed to this deal. But the district attorney office was not offering to drop that murder charge. And he wanted to be free, so he agreed. Well, yeah, but that doesn't that seem odd that they would let him go on a murder charge? I think they knew he didn't, like, do it. But by dropping the rape charge and not the murder, it was like he had served his time for the murder without the rape being added on to the sentence. Okay. And I think they didn't maybe want to admit that they got it wrong. So instead of doing a whole new trial, they just offered him the deal to get him out right then. Okay. But they wanted to keep that murder charge on mm. him. Through this, Chris was resentenced and his resentencing freed him that same day. And although he was not guilty of the murder, he was willing to take this agreement to free himself after spending half his life in prison. After 20 years of being inmate number 56265, Christopher Tapp was released on March 22nd, 2017. Oh, it's truly grateful. You don't think about all the things that you take for granted while you're out here. You know, sunshine and fresh air and, and all this, the ability to go to a McDonald's. <laughs> you lose all that. And then when you get it back, it means so much more to you than you ever thought it would be. There to support him while being released was his family and Carol Dodge, who for many years believed he was Angie's killer, but eventually advocated for him to get out of prison. 
and Jeremy Sargis, the man who Chris implicated Aldo innocent. Jeremy had struggled for a long time with anger for Chris until he actually watched the interrogation tapes for himself and he realized the coercion that Chris went through. Years after Chris was arrested, Jeremy had reached out with a letter and continued to support his old friend. No, I've known Jared about the same time too. Okay. It was, but again, you know, we just, all of us, the core group of us, you know, there was, you know, me, Ben, Jer, Russ, George, you know, there was a core group of us that just became friends then and we were pretty much inseparable for two years and then everybody like i said ben went off to phoenix because he had to do some other venture uh jared went somewhere else you know george okay. wouldn't live you know so we we're all separated at towards the end of 96 because mm-hmm. you know you can't party forever right everyone's growing up right so we all separated but we still so now since my release since 2017 you know i've I've seen Jer two or three different times. We talk. I just talked to him or messaged him and talked to him on the phone yesterday for a little while. Oh, good. So me and Jer have, you know, complete contact and and we don't hate each other, you know. Right. Because, again, he's watched the interrogation tapes. He's sat down and seen it all. He understands it. Okay. Ben refuses to do it. He just doesn't want to even look into the yeah, case, doesn't no, want anything to do with it. Yeah, you know, he, he understood, but he just doesn't want to see what transpired. After Chris is released, they go out onto the steps at the courthouse, showing Chris as a free man for the first time. His attorney, John Thomas, states, quote, For the person that did kill Angie Dodge, there's a bounty on your head. There are people coming for you, and we are looking for you, and we will not stop until we find you. And he was right. They were coming for him, and Angie's killer wouldn't be unknown for much longer. I remember seeing him get released on the news. You do? Yeah. I don't remember seeing that, but I remember hearing when he got released. The new police chief, Bryce Johnson, wanted to find Angie's killer. So the Idaho Falls Police Department made the decision to work with C.C. Moore of Parabon Nanolabs. I just watched the new show, The Genetic Detective, and it's all about C.C. Moore's work with genetic genealogy, and she is incredible. The work she is doing is new, and it is going to help solve so many cases. Their third episode is titled, who killed Angie Dodge. And a lot of information I'm going to tell you in this section comes from this show. I already had the basis to the story, but the genetic detective explains it in such an amazing way, the intense work they had to put in to find Angie's killer. Remember Bill Squires and Jeff Pratt. They were both officers that were at the crime scene. Jeff had processed the crime scene and it was Bill Squires' first homicide. He is now a captain, and both men make appearances on The Genetic Detective, talking about how they worked with Cece Moore to find answers in this case and how rewarding it was. Cece had started doing genealogy just as a hobby, eventually helping families reconnect. Over time, she realized that this kind of work could help solve cold cases. Carol had reached out to Cece in 2018. 
after 22 years of not having the right answers, Carol was desperate for Cece to help her. In the Genetic Detective episode, Carol tells Cece she just wants to live long enough to see the day her daughter's killer would be exposed. Cece and her team explain genetic DNA as putting together a puzzle. The DNA they had from Angie's case was so degraded, barely being a sample that their team would even be able to take on. One guy explains it as being a D-. If you were thinking of the samples on a grading system, they had 61 pieces of a 100-piece puzzle, missing 39 pieces. So this was going to be a challenge. Genetic testing has come such a long way, though, from back in, what, 1996 until, you know, 2017. Yeah, the technology has just got gotten, like, so good. And this is, like, brand new. They're solving so many cases with it. It's so cool. So they uploaded a DNA profile to GEDmatch, which is now known as Ancestry DNA. And they found a family bloodline that matched. Cece explains that they connected the sample to distant cousins of the perpetrator. Through finding this, Cece was able to start building a family tree using genealogy resources such as marriage records, death records, and census records. Building a tree with the great-grandparents and working her way down until she eventually comes to a couple that match the ancestral mix she specifically needs. Clarence and Cleo Usri married in December 1916, and the perpetrator in Angie's case was a descendant of this couple, either a grandchild or a great-grandchild. Cece Moore and Parabon Nanolabs end up discovering six descendants of Clarence and Cleo that could be Angie's killer, but only one of the men had ever been near Idaho Falls. This man was Michael Usri Jr., a descendant of Clarence and Cleo. He had been to Idaho Falls back in 1996, that same year that Angie was murdered. And what would you know? He is a filmmaker and he produced horror films, films that included murder, blood, and gore. And he was most known for his short film, Murderabilia. He produced this film in 2010, all about a young girl who was brutally murdered. Police are thinking like, wow, we really have our guy. It looked like the perfect match. 35-year-old Michael Usri Jr. was living in New Orleans with his wife, and he was suddenly the main suspect of the 1996 killing of Angie Dodge. Police relayed this information to him as they served him a warrant for DNA and collected it. But then six weeks later, to everyone's surprise, the DNA did not match Michael Usri Jr. Uh. And Michael was not happy with being wrongfully suspected of Angie's murder. He believes that DNA is a slippery slope and wants police departments to be careful with this. The emotions that come along with being accused of a horrifying act is something few of us will ever experience. So I can't pretend like I would understand how scared Michael must have felt in these moments, but 
Christopher Tapp knew on a much bigger scale of what being innocent and accused feels like. And putting the DNA into this database, although Michael Ustry was wrongfully accused for a very short period of time, it was the only chance Chris had at not being seen as a killer in the eyes of the law and the community. Uh, the community on this and, and the city, you know, not even should say the city, just the community was so respectful and so, you know, so wonderful to accept me back because mm-hmm. they knew the truth. You know, they right. watched, you know, the datelines and the 48 hours mm-hmm. and, and the open houses that, you know, Judges for Justice, you know, came and did. And, right. So the community was truly, truly supporting. I love the community for what they did, standing behind me and rallying behind me. And But also on that other side of that coin, you know, you're right. I was a convicted, you know, murderer and a convicted felon, so I was released. So I couldn't get, you know, licensed. I couldn't get insured. I couldn't get bonded. You know, there was a right. couple places that was willing to hire me. But when they ran their insurance, you know, if I could get bonded, they're like, yeah, no, we can't have them. I couldn't even get a job at a Walmart. Really? Yeah. Walmart refused to house me because I was a convicted, you know, felon. So, but again, I, you know, I had a few jobs. You know, I got two jobs since I I was worked for uh, one of the local construction companies here. Oh, awesome. Worked there for five months until I realized, you know, I'm a 44-year-old man that wasn't seasoned yet how to do this hard construction work and then I went to another company uh, and I worked for them you know for two and a half going on two and a half years now Mm -hmm. since my release so I've truly been lucky but again these companies hired felons right so that was easier for me to get a job there although Michael was frustrated with what happened to him Carol Dodge reached out to him She wanted to know more about his family line. She was desperate for answers at this point. Her daughter's killer was related to Michael somehow. She told Michael her devastating story and how they finally got to this point. They were so close to answers, but hit this dead end. Carol and Michael met each other and they eventually became close with them sharing their paths in this really unusual way. He told her what he could about his bloodline, and Carol told him it may be someone you don't even know. Michael, the filmmaker, was so moved by this experience that he changed a documentary he was working on to be about Angie Dodge. Using DNA and genetic genealogy is actually a huge controversial subject. Many people don't believe that police should be able to use these DNA databases. I understand, you know, with the controversy, because again, you, you look at Michael Uthery, you know, the Uthery lineage and the Uthery family and stuff like that. Right. You know, Michael Uthery was put out there, you know, saying that your markers are 35 out of 36, it's your family. And then he got brought in for questioning because, you know, unlucky for him, he was in Idaho during this time, but that was the name right. that got hit. But it takes away, so it started to ruin, you know, that family to a certain degree but again it was in the bloodline it was everybody was correct in 2015 it was just not being able to go farther until cc moore and parabon you know start doing the detective work and finding you know the second cousin and and doing Mm -hmm. whatever they did to figure you know the bloodline out and the lineage out to 
to find what they did to get my exoneration and the arrest. It's, I get it. I mean, I'm going around it the bad way, but people want to be able to have their secrecy, I guess, or, yeah. or, or their privacy. Yeah. But a lot of the people in the world, you know, want that. But then also there's other people like yourself that want to be able to help, you know, the next individual that mm -hmm. might be wrongfully convicted inside and, right. and to have this opportunity. I was the first, you know, you know, familiar DNA, you know, exoneration to arrest. You know, mm -hmm. I'm the first one in the country that this happened. Right. But again, just last month, there was another one in California. Okay. So it's going to continue to right. happen over and over again. So police gather the DNA of the other five descendants, but with each DNA sample, they continued to be disappointed. There was no match over and over until they were out of people to match it to. Like, what's going on? Police are getting more and more frustrated with each devastating failure to connect the DNA. The answer was right there in front of them, but what were they missing? Cece Moore was crushed. DNA had never failed her. She knew that the man that committed this crime had to be a descendant of Clarence and Cleo. But why did none of the DNA samples match? It had to be one of those six men. But it wasn't. So Cece decided to dig deeper into this family tree. There was one couple who had married early and divorced early. Cece had been surprised that no kids had come out of that marriage. So she searched until she came across an obituary of that woman. The one who married into the family line of Clarence and Cleo, but had left shortly after due to divorce. Miraculously, she found in this obituary that this woman had both a son and a daughter. The son carried his stepfather's last name, and this is why C.C. Moore didn't originally link him into the Usri family tree. Her son was named Brian Lee Drips. That name should sound familiar. Because Brian was Angie Dodge's neighbor that the police had talked to in the first 48 hours of the investigation. What are the odds that Brian, Angie's one-time neighbor, would be in the Usri family bloodline? This had to be it. At the time, Brian was living in Caldwell, Idaho, just hours away from Idaho Falls where Angie was murdered. Police followed him in secret just waiting for the opportunity to gather his DNA. And they have this on video in the Genetic Detective episode. Brian finally leaves his home. Police start to follow close behind him. Brian lights up a cigarette and eventually he flips that cigarette butt out of the window of his car while he's driving, unaware that this is exactly what the officers were waiting for. And they go and retrieve it. It was so awesome to watch on the genetic detective how pumped the officers were to collect this sample. The DNA was tested against the semen left at the murder of Angie Dodge. And finally, it was a match. More than 23 years after Angie's young life was taken from her, Carol had finally found her answer. She stated how shocked she was that, quote, 
It took me 23 years when they had it in the first 25 pages of the investigation. End quote. (laughs) They found it. Woo! I know. Finally. Like, I'm so happy for Carol and for Chris and mostly for Angie. On May 15th, 2019, Idaho Falls Police follow Brian to the bank where they encounter him exiting the bank just before he gets back into his truck. They ask him to come answer some questions and he agrees. This moment is also showed on the genetic detective and it actually made me emotional to see them finally coming face to face with him. For the first time in 23 years, Angie's murderer was caught. Like the police had him right there. It was a surreal moment to watch this. Brian Lee Drips, 53 years old, arrives at the Caldwell Police Station and is interrogated by the Idaho Falls Police Department. Officers recall him trembling, his hands shaking, nervously denying all allegations that he was involved. This was when the police told him they already gathered his DNA and it was a match. He took a smoke break at this moment and when he returned, he confessed. He stated that he did not mean to kill Angie. He washed his gloves in her sink and when he left, He thought she was alive. He said he had intended to rape her, but not kill her. Which like, okay, Brian. I find this hard to believe because Angie had so many injuries. 14 stab wounds and you slit her throat, but you weren't trying to kill her. And why were you wearing gloves? Like, that's just an outright lie. Yeah, it is. Brian also stated that he committed this crime completely alone. Remember, Christopher Tapp, although free at the time police obtained Brian, still had that murder conviction on his record. Legally, he was a convicted murderer. At the time of Angie's murder, Brian was 30 years old. He lived across the street from Angie in downtown Idaho Falls on I Street. Just one year earlier, in 1995, he married Nicole Sept Chambers. She was pregnant with their first child at the time of the murder and would later have two more children with him. The Idaho statesman reached out to Nicole to talk to her about her ex-husband's arrest shortly after he was arrested. She had no idea that he was arrested for Angie's murder and knew nothing about his involvement. Shockingly, she asked the reporter at the Idaho statesman, quote, I had two more children with him after he murdered her, end quote. Brian had been a violent drug user and even Nicole said she was scared of him back then. Just seven months after Angie's murder, Brian picked up and moved his family. They moved to California for a time and then ended up back in Caldwell, Idaho, where Brian's mother lived. Brian had a limited criminal history. He dabbled in some drugs and had some driving charges, including a DUI. But it seems he never killed again, and he hadn't killed before. With the answers finally here, and the man guilty of taking the young 18-year-old life of Angie Dodge was put away, Christopher Tapp was finally exonerated on July 17, 2019, one month after Brian's arrest. That truly was a heartfelt moment because, again, 
I was able to get my name back, my family's name back. And right. And melt the world to me. Right. As during this time, you know, my mother was looked at different. And my father, before he passed away, was looked at different. And, and, and I didn't like that. Right. So now, you know, my mom's hold, able to hold her head up higher when she goes out and, and say, hey, right. I told you. Yeah. And that's what means more to me than anything is just yeah. having those moments for her and, and my family. And, and as you could tell, you know, one of the other witnesses that testified against me during my trial, uh, Destiny Osborne, she's recanted her statement since my release and everything right. else. And that's all on her, been on her own because it's ate her up for the last 20, you know, some years. How the police department forced her to make the so-called, you know, statements against me because she was being pushed into it by the same officers, officers that pushed me right. into the so-called confession that I had. Not only did Brian Lee Drips destroy Angie's family, but he hurt multiple other families. He hurt Christopher Tapp's family, Jeremy Sarge's family, Ben Hobbs family, and now even his own family will suffer because of his decision to take Angie's life. He not only committed a brutal and devastating crime, but he let Chris take the fall. He let Chris spend 20 years of his life in prison while Brian walked free and lived his life. My feeling towards, you know, the man is... There's a mixed emotions, you know. There's a lot of emotions how I feel about the man. And and I just don't know how to ever put it in the words on how it feels to let... That somebody would let somebody else sit and do 20 years of their life and waste their life and... and and be okay with Christopher Tapp is seeking restitution for his wrongful conviction. Just last year, 2020, our governor, Brad Little, vetoed the bill that compensates the wrongfully convicted. Please let Brad Little know that our wrongfully convicted need to be compensated for the life that was taken from them. Oh, no, I'm truly happy for the, you know, life I'm living at home. You know, I'm married and I have three wonderful, you know, stepkids. And I mean, my my life is great, but also on the other side of that coin, I should have had what I have now. A long time ago. some years ago. Yeah. So. Not only did Chris lose years of his life, he lost relationships along the way as well. I've talked to Ben since my release in 2017 <laughs> and his release. He called me once from inside when he was before he was released on parole. And then I think we've talked two more times since his release on parole. But we haven't kept in great contact whatsoever. You know, he's mad at the world. He's mad at, you know, me. He's mad at, you know, the police department. He's mad at the city of Idaho Falls. He's just mad because he knew the truth. Back then, too. Right. But I'm the one who... I shouldn't say I'm the one. It was the Idaho Falls Police Department that continued to yes. say, Hey, we know it was you and Ben. Hey, you just tell us it was Ben and we'll, you right. know, firm as great as, you know, one of his lines during the, you know, interviews or interrogations was, We'll take <laughs> Ben through the goalposts of life. It it was just really sad that all that transpired. Right. And I get why Ben doesn't really... You know, him and Jer still talk. But for me to... And talk to Ben... It's really rough because I've, you know, he's forgiven me and we've, you know, we've discussed it all and, and it's great, but it's, 
which just ruined, you know, that friendship that me and him had. One little side note that I found pretty amazing about Carol Dodge is that on June 12th, 2020, she attended the vigil for J.J. Vallow and Tylee Ryan. Most of you, I'm sure, have heard of this case out of Rexburg, here just 20 minutes north of Idaho Falls, where Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell at the time were alleged to have involvement in the murder of Lori's two children along with many others. Now they are arrested on these things, and we know that they did murder the kids. But at the time that Carol went to this vigil, it was just alleged. But Carol attended to honor these young kids' lives. Nate Eaton is a local reporter, and on his Facebook page, he posted a picture of him and Carol. He said, quote, Last night at the vigil, Carol Dodge came over and gave me a hug. She said, quote, 24 years ago tonight, I was holding Angie for the last time, end quote. Her daughter was savagely murdered the next day, and for over two decades, Carol has fought to find the true killer and bring Angie justice. I was touched that Carol came to JJ and Tylee's vigil. When we parted, she said what she always says to me and almost everyone else, I love you, end quote. So Brian Lee Drips, originally he was pleading not guilty, but I'm sure he realized that he obviously was guilty and that he would be convicted. So he actually agreed to plead guilty. So there was no trial. And it looks like on June 8th, 2021, Brian Lee Drips, senior 55, must serve at least 20 years in prison before he will be eligible for parole. Drip's defense attorneys said that his medical problems, including a history of heart issues and an autoimmune disease, make it unlikely that he will live long enough to get oh, parole. he's lucky enough that he was free for all, for all those years. years. I know. Like, he didn't go until that, like, end of his life. So, it's the judge over it that sentenced him is 7th District Judge Joel Tingey. And he said, quote, 25 years is a long time to wait for some type of closure on such a brutal crime, end quote. And then again, he said, quote, it's impossible to quantify how much damage has been caused and it's spread wide, end quote. So the judge also said, quote, a young man spent a significant portion of his life in prison for no good reason. He was innocent. That falls on you, end quote. And then Todd Dodge, Angie's brother, said, quote, he sentenced me to a lifetime of hell. So far, I have served 9,126 days, end quote. Her other brother, Roger Dodge, said Angie's, Angie's murder is the most devastating thing he's ever experienced. And then Brian Drips also spoke and offered an apology, quote, I am sorry. I didn't intend for this to happen. Wish we could have a chance at a do-over because I would do over that day. I know you'll never forgive me, but I am sorry. End quote. Ultimately, there is one reason that we are all here, and that is to support the life of Angie Dodge. Speak her name, share her story, talk about false confessions, and about how DNA got us justice for her. Talk about how important genetic genealogy will become in cold cases. Her justice was a long time coming, so honor her and never forget her story. 
If you enjoyed our show today, please share this story with your friends and share us onto your social media. We would love it if you help us continue to make this podcast by leaving us a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. I will literally love you forever. If you have any case suggestions or suggestions on what we can do with our episodes, please email them to us at truecrimeexposed at gmail.com. T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-E-X-P-O-S-E-D at gmail.com. I also want to do a little segment where we share stories or questions or any craziness from our listeners. We'll do this once a month or every couple months. So if you have something to say that you want featured on the podcast, please email us. Follow us on social media for pictures and info on each case we cover. On Instagram and TikTok, we are at truecrime underscore podcast and on Twitter at truecrime underscore pod. This podcast is written, hosted, and edited by me, Kayla Waters. It's co-hosted by my mom. She takes the time out of her very busy schedule as a nurse practitioner in the NICU to be here with us and give you a better experience while you listen to the show. My cute daughter, Charlie Waters, gives us our palate cleanser at the end of each episode. You'll want to stick around for that. It's too cute and it will make you feel good after hearing a scary story. Our original graphic art was done by Arthur Max, and our music was created by Jaden Schultz. You can find him on Instagram at InPajamasMusic. We already talked about the organizations that we are supporting in this show. We'll normally do that at the end, but they fit right into our episode today, along with our interview with Chris Tapp. So go visit those organizations we talked to you about and give them some support. The Idaho Innocence Project is truly amazing. Greg Hampikian and his team is truly a godsend. You know, they're, they are the voice for the voiceless. You know, they're the ones that, because again, you're a convicted, you know, felon and, and murderer and rapist and all this while you're inside. So nobody wants to listen to you. Right. But, you know, the Idaho Innocence Project will become your voice and start showing the truth as time goes on. And, and, you know, and I picked up another, you know, Innocence Program group, you know, Judges for Justice during this uh-huh, time. Yeah. And Mike Heavey. And, and these people are just truly amazing that they, you know, throw the flag out there and they become your voice because no one wants to listen to you. But right. these are distinguished individuals and the best at what they do. You know, Greg Hampik is one of the best DNA experts in the country. Yeah. And in the world for what he does. And, you know... Judge for Justice, Mike Evie's retired judge and senator from Washington. So, and his little core group of, you know, retired FBI agents and stuff like that, they're pushing for your innocence and pushing for your release. So, these programs are truly, truly amazing. And they mostly do it on grants and private funding right. and contributions. And, you know, even money comes out of their own pocket because they truly believe in what they do. Hi, True Crimeys. I'm Charlie Waters. I'm here today to get you a palate cleanser. Did you know that cows have best friends? And they get a set when they're apart. There's an organization you can donate to. 
or get involved at www.barnsanctuary.org. They have an article, The Science of Cow Friendship. Cows have best friends. When cows, cows are paired with their best friend, the cow's heart rates were lower. They experienced less stress overall. Bye-bye. Have a good day.